And this is, I vow never again to turn my gaze from thee. I take this sacred vow. Never will I lower my love's gaze below the eyebrow horizon of my constant thoughts of thee. Never will I turn my uplifted inner sight away from thee. Never will I let my mind dwell on anything that reminds me not of thee. I will disdain the nightmare of ignorant behavior. I will court all dreams of noble achievement, those of love, kindness, and understanding, for they are thy dreams. Though I dream many dreams, wakefully I will ever think of thee. In the sacred fire of constant remembrance, kept ever alight on my soul's altar, I will ever behold thy presence with the watchful eyes of devotional love. Thy grace has shown me that the dualities of health and sickness, life and death, joy and sorrow are but passing fantasies. I am finished with those eternally self-canceling delusions. I am persuaded at last that there is but one abiding reality, thy eternal, ever-conscious, ever-new, ever-thrilling, infinite bliss. So again, welcome to all of you gathered here at Ananda Village in the Temple of Light, and welcome to all of you viewing online. This, as Ananta read, uh, one of the greatest teachings simply expressed, probably one of the most well-known, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And if everyone was living that very well-known and great teaching, we'd be living on a very different, probably, planet, and uh, certainly in a very different reality. As it says in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, Krishna says, day to the worldly man is night to the yogi, and night to the worldly man is day to the yogi. In other words, two very different perspectives, and there are at least two <laughs> in this reality we're living in, but certainly these two, because this, these words, seek ye first, they invite us to really ask of ourselves, you know, on what path am I setting the course of my life? because depending on which perspective we take, either the one of the world, that this in the world I am going to find fulfillment, and if I can control things and control my reality and obtain things, then I am going to be successful, I am going to be happy. And the other is this fundamental underlying trust 
in the divine, that if I focus my life on God first, everything else will take care of itself. I recall an interview, a radio interview that Swami Kriyananda, one of countless that he did, but I remember it well. And the interviewer asked Swamiji, well, said to him, it certainly seems that you have a very deep faith, but is that really practical? (laughs) And Swamiji answered and he said, it is very practical. It's the most practical way to live. And Swamiji, he... You know, from when I came to Ananda, I came, as a, I came at the age of 21. My life before that was a good life. It was not a God-centered life. I wouldn't even say, um, certainly it was a truth-centered life, but I really don't, I wasn't very much conscious of that. I was making choices, but I don't think I could have even articulated that at that time. So when I came to Ananda, and I heard, you know, Swamiji uh, share the teachings of his guru, Paramahansa Yogananda, of my guru. These resonated in a really profound way. And I would say that I grew up in that environment, in that deep, profound spiritual environment. And I, having been initially exposed to that, I sought those things that resonated on that level from that point on. It was a means by which to discriminate about what path to take, what step to take, and everything. Swamiji shared stories all the time that would, to the average person, seem fairly miraculous, uncommon, a little bit uncanny, and he just talked about them one after the other after the other. It was normal in his life because of the way he lived and the consciousness that he brought into everything. One story that he loved to share, and we've, those of us who've been around, we've heard it <laughs> so many times. And uh, he was arriving at Calcutta. He was go- headed to India and got to the airport. And the friends who were going to pick him up were late. They were held up, and they weren't there. And Calcutta, I mean, it's a huge place bustling with people and chaos. Uh, and he, the normal person would be probably a little worried. I've been at that airport <laughs> and not seen the person who's going to pick me up. Um, and, you know, would perhaps run for the nearest phone or just start to really stress And Swamiji simply sat there, and he, his first thought was, well, Divine Mother, you know, what's your plan now? And he, what came to mind, he was really hoping to see a friend, a friend whom he'd met and known in America, a Dr. Misra, who had got his PhD at Davis and then went back to University, UC Davis, went back to Calcutta. He lived in Bhubaneswar, which was hundreds of miles from Calcutta, and he was really hoping to see him, but now it seemed quite unlikely. So he's sitting there with this thought, Divine Mother, what are we going to do now? And in comes this man. He's just deboarded from a plane. He's rushing toward Swamiji. 
And he says in very Indian fashion, what is your good name, sir? And Swamiji says, Swami Kriyananda. And the man said, I thought so. He said, I've seen your picture. My very good friend, Dr. Misra, it has showed me your picture and introduced me to you in that way. And I've uh, heard so much about you. I've been really wanting to meet you. And Swamiji said, well, Dr. Misra, I mean, he's, he's in Bhubaneswar. I want to go see him. And the man said, no, no, not at all necessary. He has just come to Calcutta. In fact, I am going to see him right now, and I will take you there. <laughs> and Swamiji loved to tell that story. And, you know, again, just to the average person, you know, a big coincidence. But to Swamiji, it was just the natural flow of his life, the extension of living for God first. He just lived in that consciousness, in that reality, served that reality, and that created a certain magnetism that drew experiences like that, not for the sake of experience and all the woo-woo-woo, but you know, just that his life was divinely guided and he lived in that reality. And so as I said, you know, I grew up in this consciousness, in this way of being, and it deeply resonated with me. It resonates with me. It seemed a very practical way to live to my, you know, own consciousness. And when uh, I remember when Swamiji asked uh, Ananta and myself to serve Ananda in Sacramento, and uh, we were there about maybe about a year or so, And it became apparent to us and the group of people who we were most closely working with in terms of leading the community and serving the people there that we needed um, a bigger ashram than just a residential house in a suburban area that would at best, you know, house maybe 12 people (laughs) doubling up and loads if we opened up the back lawn for overnight sleeping, which we did sometimes when Swamiji came to give a talk. But uh, so we began to look for an apartment complex, Palo Alto community, Ananda there, had found one a couple, uh, a year prior or so, and we were inspired by that. And we engaged uh, just in a informal fashion a number of people who were uh, capable of handling and looking into real estate. And, but they all, you know, after showing us one or two properties, they went on to somebody else. You know, they just never thought that they could make us happy. There was this one man who we met right at the onset. We didn't even meet him personally. It was just a phone conversation. This is what we're interested in. This is what we need. Can you help us? And he said, well, I'll... I'll try. Two and a half years went by. We looked at hundred, you know, over a hundred, well over a hundred complexes. Um, we gathered every Friday night. It was a service that we offered to the congregation, open to the public. We would have a long meditation, a three-hour meditation, and we would meditate. And just to affirm our self-offering, our wish to be in tune with the divine will, our hope that we would be guided to the right thing. So two and a half years have gone by, and Ananta and Lalita and Trimurti were 
living in Sacramento and serving with us at that time. She was also in seclusion, and Trimurti and I were in the office, and the phone rang. And it was this man that we had, this real estate agent, we hadn't heard from him in two and a half years. And he said, I found your property. It's just what you need. And I just said, how do you know? (laughs) I said, we haven't heard from you in two and a half years. Where have you been? And he said, well, I, I never found anything. There was never anything that came up that would have been right for you. And I was so impressed. You know, he clearly wasn't after the sale because many other people showed us things that were just ridiculous, you know, in terms of building and serving community. So, you know, lo and behold, we went there. He said, you're going to have to act right away. It's not on the market. And when it goes on the market at the end of the week, that'll be it. And we went there that day, and uh, a polite way of s- word would be fixer-upper. <laughs> to the eye, it was not a rational step to take, but it was clearly what Yogananda, what Master was giving us. And I've always felt that those meditations that we shared together, I mean, just every day and every week, put that wish, that intention on the proper foundation. You know, if we hadn't, if we weren't nurturing that attunement together and that willingness to, you know, uh, be open to what God was giving us, it just wasn't going to manifest. And it took a while, but I think that was to our benefit as a group because we all came together in a really deep and powerful way. There's a delightful story in the autobiography of a yogi. Uh, Yogananda has gone back to India, and he's trying to meet up with people that are central to uh, our lineage, their lives, their stories, their uh, deep Uh, spirituality and and consciousness. And Kashimoni, the wife of Lahiri Mahashai, relates this story. And she says, I was at one point, you know, it's, she's received Kriya now from her husband, who she's realized is her guru, and that was an amazing story in itself. But nonetheless, you know, we keep growing through these refinements of our consciousness, this purification. And she finds herself in this moment, and she's thinking and then says to him, you're always spending your time with the disciples. You're with them all the time. You're with them day and night. You should be putting more energy into your family, toward your wife, towards providing financially for our needs. So at this point, (laughs) hearing this, Lahiri Mahashai disappears. (laughs) He exits his physical form, and this booming voice comes out of the ether and says, don't you see it's all nothing? How can a little nothing like me provide materially for our family. So at this point, deeply humbled, I mean, bless her heart, (laughs) 
Could have been any one of us, I think, you know. You just, Maya takes over and all of a sudden it's about material consciousness again. Comes out of nowhere. So bless her heart, she realizes her error and bows at his feet and Lahiri Mahashai descends in bodily form down to ground level again because the voices come from somewhere up there, out there. And he says, don't worry, one of my spiritual sons will provide the financial resources needed. And in fact, in a little bit of time, that is exactly what happened, and everything was again on sound footing on all levels. But Yogananda gives us a very practical teaching for putting this in place, God first, God alone, Sikhi first, And he recalls a passage from the Bible, again, probably a very well-known one, but not well understood, not well lived by. If thine eye be single, thy whole body will be filled with light. And he goes on to say that if we can live with our consciousness at this point, the point of the spiritual eye. If we can live with our consciousness there, in other words, if we can bring our energy up to a focus here, instead of out there, down there, in the world, in worldly consciousness, if we can practice trying to do that, it'll greatly accelerate our spiritual life. To just try to do that, will greatly accelerate our spiritual life. And, you know, when it says, if thine eye be single, thy whole body will be filled with light, it's not talking just about the physical reality. It's not talking about perfect health or being well or getting well, just. It could be that. It could be that if it was God's will, but it could not be that. But just as in the earlier reference, seek ye first, all these things shall be yours, it's talking about a state of consciousness, a state of consciousness that's bigger than matter, that's bigger than things, that's bigger than having control over our reality, our life, how things are flowing. It's talking about a bigger consciousness beyond matter, seated in the divine. And that is a priceless gift. That's the thing that we want added. That's the thing that we want to magnetize by putting out the right consciousness, by having our desire be for God alone, for God first. And you don't have to be perfected in that to hold that thought. Most of us aren't. I'm not. But you can still have that thought. You can still have that goal. It can still be a sound affirmation by which you're trying to direct your life. It's the most practical thing that we can do. And oftentimes people will think, well, if I try to live my life that way, if I try to do that, then these other things aren't so important. So it doesn't maybe really matter if I do a good job, or if I do a perfect job, or if I, you know, take on this project or something. Maybe it doesn't really matter. 
you know, that's, it, that's in our subconscious somewhere, perhaps. And we think that if I'm seeking God and God's what's really important, then, you know, if I blow it here or there or just don't do it, no one's going to really notice. But that is not the teaching. <laughs> the teaching is to do both. And, and if we enter into it with that consciousness for God alone, then it becomes an offering to the divine. Then it becomes an act which is liberating and freeing. In other words, there's no karmic, karmic response that is binding us by the performance of that action. Do the job well. Do it as best as you possibly can. Live your life as best as you possibly can. Care for your kids. Give them all the attention you possibly can. None of these things are a distraction or, a, or demean in any way our spiritual lives. We just are able to do it all better and without that... Uh, attachment if it is centered in God first. So very important, very, very important for us. I remember many years ago I had a dream and I was in the dream, I was in a large, uh, well, a dome, (laughs) a dome-like cave, very well lit, like this, but it was an earthen, you know, a huge earthen uh, cave, I guess is the image I have. And I was kneeling right before my spiritual teacher in that life and seeking blessing. I, w- I had to leave. I, I don't know if it was, I assume it was ordained. I hope so. <laughs> Not some delusion taking me out. But I don't know. In any case, uh, it was okay, and the energy was fine, and I was just getting that blessing before leaving. So I departed and the next scene, in the next scene, I was in a room, a very austere room, simple. Um, I don't remember any furnishing or anything, small. And I was with a dear friend of mine, and I was about to embark and return back to my spiritual home, whatever it was, my, my teacher. Um, and I was ready to go but not taking anything with me because I didn't perceive a need for anything. But my friend was stressing out over this because it was a very arduous journey. It was back up this steep mountain, and the image I had of the mountain was just this narrow, rocky trail up the side of a rock face and just a muddy, red earth like we have here at Ananda, slippery, treacherous, all of that. But, you know, I was going home. And my friend was, you know, you've got to take something to eat. You've got to take a set of dry clothes. You've got to, you know, you can't, you just can't head out like this. And I was like, you know, I'm going. I'm gone. And, uh, and my friend just, you know, really uh, was not happy with this. And at that point, I noticed just a little amulet, kind of a, a disc. It was blue and gold, and I picked it up. And I said, I'll take this with me. And I headed off. And I assume I got there. The dream ended at that point. But when I woke, I, I had the sense that that was symbolic of the guru. That was symbolic of God. And if, if we go with that, if we journey with that, then everything else is going to 
come together and be fine. And again, fine outwardly, I, you know, what is that? What is that? For the devotee, it's fine inwardly. It's fine in God's, in God and in God's will. And, and that's really what we're after. There's a beautiful line in the song, um, Krishna's Flute, which uh, Bhagavati and Ramesha will somehow do for us <laughs> after, after this talk. But, um, and it says, I've heard you piping on a hill, and that's a reference to Krishna. I've heard you piping with his flute on a hill. All else I've set aside. And that thought is so freeing. You know, to just set it aside, experiment with that, build your own faith, see the practicality of it, to just set aside all that nonsense that goes on up here in our heads and see what plan God has for you. See, see how that grace is going to flow into your life. It's the most practical way to live and I wouldn't think of doing it another way. And I, I know all of you share that with me. So God bless you all. The secret of laughter lies in the laughing, not in the search for joy. It's a swallow winging on the wind that's innocence in a void.
I've heard your flute high on a cloud. Your call I can't resist. Oh, let me come and play with you. We'll scatter music with the dew and sound the morning mist. I've heard you piping on a hill. All else I've set aside. Oh, let us dance the mountain peaks. We'll skip with breezes on the creeks and soar the valleys called me to the fields now I've no place to live don't send me back rejected friend whatever I call mine must end all that I am I give I hear your call in every tree, in every flower and stream, and sweetest melody of all, a song that heaven's joy recalls here in my heart you see.